Good morning. My name is Corey Talman. Uh, it's my pleasure to do the next uh, sermon in our series on the Holy Spirit today. So uh, we're in John 16, 13 through 14, and this is um, a little snippet of a much longer passage uh, that's often called the Upper Room Discourse. This is when Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room. Um, uh, this, this was the Last Supper. And after the Last Supper, he gave them words of comfort and encouragement, preparing them for the days ahead where they were going to see him arrested, crucified, and killed. Um, leading up to this point, he, uh, he offers promises that he, Jesus, will be with them, will continue to be present with them, that God the Father, too, will continue to be present with them, and he talks about this character, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God, and uh, we've learned about him so far in John 14, 17. Um, the Spirit's called the Helper and the Spirit of Truth. And he says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In John 15, 26, he says that the spirit will bear witness about him. That is, the spirit will bear witness about Jesus. And so we have this picture forming of the Holy Spirit who is with the disciples and at some future point will have a deeper relationship with them of being in them and will be talking about Jesus to them. Uh, if you want to know more about the Upper Room Discourse and do a deeper dive, we did a whole sermon series on it last summer, and so you can find the recordings of that on our website. From this point, the disciples are going to go out with Jesus and pray. They'll see him arrested, he'll be crucified, he'll die, he'll rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and then after a little period of waiting, there comes this feast called Pentecost. And when the disciples are all gathered together, this promised Holy Spirit will arrive in power. And the disciples are going to start speaking all sorts of languages. Jake talked a little bit about this last week. They're going to be speaking the languages of all the people who are visiting Jerusalem from foreign lands, declaring the glories of God. And as a crowd gathers, Peter is going to stand up and preach and preach the gospel. And the people will be cut to the heart, it says. And many people will put their faith in Jesus. So that's the trajectory we're on with this Holy Spirit here. So in this passage, these two verses, um, a lot of parts of the Bible have layers of meaning, things that uh, you can understand them in one way and they are true in that way and they're also going to be true in um, another way as well. And we're definitely gonna see that here in this passage. And so we're gonna keep a lookout for uh, both a kind of more specific meaning of what Jesus is saying and a more general takeaway that will both be true in different ways. So starting with verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, so here he is introduced again as the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We've got three verbs here for what the Spirit does. The Spirit guides, the Spirit declares, and the Spirit glorifies. Uh, they're part of three different phrases. He guides to truth. He declares what is to come. He glorifies Jesus by making him known. 
And all of these circle around this idea of revealing truth or teaching. We can see them on one hand as three different functions of the Spirit. We can also look at them as three different portrayals of one basic work of the Spirit. And that's what I'm going to dig into today. So let's look at those three images and see what they reveal. First, the Spirit guides into all truth. Guiding is a way of teaching in which you're actually leading someone. You're not just speaking from afar, but you are with them, holding their hand into something. When you're guiding, there's a sense of presence in that word. The Spirit is declaring. When you're declaring, you are speaking. You're saying something out loud, explaining something, stating the facts. You're not just a silent presence, but one that actually makes things clear with words. And the Spirit will be glorifying, making much of something, singing the praises of something, portraying the greatness of something. When the Spirit teaches, it shows that Christ is great, and that glorifies Christ. So while these, in some ways, are three different actions, they all have this common thread of making the truth known and fleshing out this idea of how the Spirit makes the truth known and what that's like. The Spirit doesn't just teach us. The Spirit is present with us, guiding us. The Spirit isn't just with us. The Spirit is speaking, active, making things clear. And when the Spirit speaks, he reveals truth. And when he reveals truth, almost by definition, that truth glorifies Christ. What is the scope of this truth is a question worth, worth asking. Because, of course, it says he will guide you into all the truth. Is that, should we take that as all truth, every fact ever? Or is there a more specific meaning intended here? If we take a step back to verse 12... Jesus, right before this, uh, begins this section by saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, and so on. This should lead us to see that the spirit's presence and work are a continuation of Jesus' teaching. Right? So he has been teaching them things. He has more things to say. It can't all come out now. So the spirit's work is going to complete Christ's teaching. And Christ's teaching at this point is the gospel, the message that Jesus is going to die for us and be raised from the dead to reconcile us sinners to the God who created us. So the Spirit leading us into truth and declaring things to come in a specific sense we should see as the Spirit teaching us the gospel. And what is this phrase? Take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is declaring things of Christ. When we go on to the next verse, verse 15, it says, All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit makes God known to us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Takes the things of the Father that are given to the Son that are given to the Spirit and declares them to us. This glorifies Christ, simply making him known, Christ and the saving work he's done. They're glorious. So the specific sense of the message here is the Spirit teaches us the gospel. 
There's a specific sense of the audience here too that Jesus is promising this to the disciples that are there. The general sense here is also that uh, the audience is not just those disciples, but there's a way that this applies to Christians going forward as well. At Pentecost, when Peter preaches, people give their lives to Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts, we see people becoming Christians and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So the presence of the Holy Spirit isn't just for these disciples in the room. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a gift for Christians. There's also a more general sense about what this truth is. After Pentecost, the Spirit's gonna move in people and tell them and show them all kinds of things. Go here, do this. And so while the specific and the emphasis, uh, the emphasized point in this is uh, that the Spirit teaches us the gospel, there's a more general sense that the Spirit teaches us true things. His primary role and focus here is revealing the truth about Christ, which is glorifying to Christ. And then beyond that, sharing with us things of the Father. So making known the things of God to us. For a point of comparison, It's a great quote from Albert Einstein. Once when talking about uh, what motivates him, he said, I want to know the mind of God. The rest is details. It's inspiring to me. Someone who wants to dive below the surface and understand the deep things of God. But for Einstein, God was like the impersonal creative force behind the universe, not a person that you could talk to. So when Einstein talks about knowing the mind of God, he's talking about knowing how the universe works on its most basic level, the fundamental laws of nature. That's knowing the mind of God to him. And he worked really, really hard to know a little bit more of the mind of God as he saw him. But we have a God that doesn't stand far off making us labor just to figure him out. We have a God who comes to us to make himself known. He guides us, walking with us in his presence. He speaks, declaring truths about himself and even things that are to come so that we will know him. And he's glorified, both by the truths of the universe that Einstein so carefully studied, but most of all, by the things of his own mind that are shared with us through the Holy Spirit. I shared this thought with Jake and he pointed out to me, Uh, Einstein's God is pretty much knowable by theoretical physicists. Like if you don't have a PhD in that, you're not really gonna know the mind of God. Our God is knowable by everyone. So I'm gonna sum up the work of the Spirit in this passage by saying this. The Spirit, excuse me, the Spirit speaks. But I hope that when you hear me say that now, there's a richness of meaning behind that simple phrase that raises some joy, some excitement in you. The Spirit speaks to make known the most glorious thing that can be known. But there's something troubling about this as well because there's a lot more room to explore here, lots of different questions that could be asked, but for me, this all raises one really big practical question. The Spirit speaks, that's great, on paper. But when the Spirit speaks, what does he actually sound like? Jesus doesn't really spend any 
time on this question in this passage. But if we're to believe that the Spirit speaks, guides, makes Christ known, then we really need to consider where the rubber hits the road in our lives. So to flesh this out, I want to break down this question a little more and ask, does the Spirit really speak? When he does, what is that like? And when you think you hear someone speaking, how do you know it's the Spirit? So first, does the Spirit really speak? The short answer is yes. The teaching of the Bible is that the Spirit is real and really speaks. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think you should assume that the Spirit is speaking to you in some way, shape, or form. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit is not just an idea, the Spirit is a person in your life. So yes, the Spirit speaks. The next obvious question then is, when the Spirit speaks, what's that like? And of course, it's always just like Moses and the burning bush, right? This story is found in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Moses is a guy who got to see more than his fair share of amazing, spectacular acts of God. This is the one that kicked it all off. Moses comes across a bush that's miraculously on fire but isn't burning up. And God himself speaks out of the bush and tells Moses who he is and what he was calling Moses to do, equipping him even with the power to do certain miracles just as proof that he was on a mission from God. So that's what it's like when the Spirit speaks, right? Unmistakable supernatural voices tell you exactly what's going on and what you're supposed to do. No, of course not. Even Moses, whose life was punctuated by some of the most memorable supernatural scenes in the whole Bible, went through most days of his life without any miracles or voices telling him what to do. So I just want to look at five ways that the Spirit speaks. This list is not exhaustive. God can speak however he'd like. These are just things that I notice in the Bible, things with good biblical grounding that God uses. So here they are. First, an audible voice. Second, visions and dreams. Third, an internal voice. Fourth, community. Fifth, the Bible. So first up, the audible voice of God. I know I just treated that as a bit of a joke, but it is real. This is when someone can actually hear a voice speaking to them in language they understand, not as part of a dream or vision, but just in daily waking life. I don't know anyone personally who's heard the audible voice of God, but it happens plenty of times in the Bible. In addition to the Moses story I already mentioned, if you're curious, some places to look at the audible voice of God are in the stories of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, one of my favorites, and the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3. Second, visions and dreams. This stuff is all over the Bible. Either while people sleep or while they're awake, they see and hear things. Sometimes these things are very clear, like the dreams that Joseph, the father of Jesus, had around the time of the birth of Jesus. An angel tells him to go ahead and get married to, uh, married to Mary in a dream, tells him to run from King Herod in a dream, tells him to return to Judea after Herod's death in a dream, and tells him to go live in Galilee in a dream. All very clear-cut. 
At other times, the Spirit sends more ambiguous dreams that only become clear later on or sometimes require someone to interpret them. Some other good stories about dreams and interpretation are the stories of a different Joseph in Genesis 39 to 41, Daniel in Daniel 1 to 2, Peter in Acts 10, and Paul in Acts 16. Also, really, any of the big books of prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, they draw very heavily on visions that the prophets had. Third, the internal voice. This is when the Spirit speaks to your mind or heart. You've probably heard people express things like, God put it on my heart. This can be a whole thought that appears one day in your mind or a feeling. Because it's internal, it's harder to nail down when exactly this is happening in Scripture. But anytime people are responding to the Spirit, Without any mention of an audible voice or other external cues, this might be what's going on. For myself, I think this is the most common way I hear the voice of the Spirit. There are times when I feel something like a nudge, but not physical. Uh, most common version of that experience is just a feeling of being unsettled, not quite comfortable. And when I wonder what I should do about this, there are paths ahead of me that make me feel at peace as I consider them and walk down them. And there's paths ahead of me that leave me feeling troubled. My wife and I have both had that experience of being led by the feeling of peace. So that's one thing that it can feel like. Next, community. This is when you hear the Spirit speak and guide you through the words and actions of other people. In particular, other Christians who have the Spirit dwelling in them too. Jake preached about this last week, talking about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the importance of having Christians in your life who can speak into your walk with God. The Spirit speaks in community when friends encourage or confront each other with the truths of the gospel. The Spirit speaks in community through preaching the Bible and declaring the gospel. This is why we're doing this right now. When the Spirit has moved in someone such that they reveal the truths of Christ, the Spirit has done his work. The Spirit works in praise music as well when someone is up here singing and leading you all in singing and declaring things about God. That's the Spirit speaking through your community. Lastly, the Bible. The Bible itself. In the Bible, the Spirit has worked through many different writers and their circumstances to bring together a collection of writings that are his primary way of telling us who God is, who we are, how he relates to us. The stories, essays, visions, poetry, and everything else in the Bible have guided people to know and worship God for thousands of years, speaking across time, culture, geography, some verses to know about the significance of Scripture in the life of the Christian include 1 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus' words in Matthew 5.17-18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Also, Psalm 119, which I'm not going to quote here because the whole thing 
is about how God's law is wonderful and life-giving. Please also notice, in this passage, Jesus is promising to the earliest disciples that the Spirit will guide them into truth and declare to them things that are to come. Some of these same people would go on to write the books and letters that we have come to know as the New Testament. So when you hold a Bible in your hand, you hold the fulfillment of this very scripture we're reading today. The scripture revealed the truth of Christ to the disciples. They understood it. They wrote it down. Now it sits in the palm of your hand, guiding you into knowing the glories of Christ. In preparation for this sermon, I asked my friend Elaine about how she's experienced the Holy Spirit speaking to her. She gave me this answer. In my life, spiritual experiences of hearing or feeling have been rare, if not non-existent. However, when I read what the Bible says about who Jesus is, his supremacy, perfections, saving work, and resurrection, and if I believe what it says about him, and if I like what it says about him, and if what it says about him stirs even a kernel of joy or awe, I know the Spirit is at work, revealing the truth of Christ to me through the scriptures. The Bible is the Spirit's primary way of revealing the gospel and the glories of Christ. And what Elaine said highlights a key difference between the simple act of reading the Bible and what it means for the Spirit to speak through the Bible. If Elaine believes what it says, that's because the work of the Spirit, sorry, because of the work of the Spirit within her, gifting her with faith. If Elaine likes what it says, if it stirs some joy, that's because the Spirit is turning her heart towards God. When these written words of the Bible meet the work of the Spirit within you, Christ is revealed and glorified to you in a way that goes beyond mere words. So these are five ways the Spirit speaks. In an audible voice, in visions, in an internal voice, in community, and in the Bible. But these last three seem to do the heavy lifting. The supernatural spectacles are relatively rare, even in the Bible. For all the stories we have of individuals that hear God's voice, there's thousands that go through their lives never hearing anything like that. Most people navigate their walk with God relying on his written word in the Bible, his spoken word from their community, and the convictions of the Spirit in their hearts and minds. Let's take a look at two stories that show these things in action. The first is the story of Jehaziel. You know Jehaziel, right? Probably not, because he's not very important. He's named in the Bible exactly once. Here's what happened. This story comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. During the reign of King Jehoshaphat, a real king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, an army came to attack Jerusalem. It was big. In verse 3, we read, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. 
Jehoshaphat begins by praying. He praises God's great power and sovereign reign over the earth, calls on him to remember the promises he's made about his temple in Jerusalem. He ends with this, verse 12. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So Judah is assembled, waiting on God, totally reliant on him to save them. That phrase, seek the Lord, showed up three times in two sentences. Did you catch that? They're seeking him, but they don't even know what's supposed to happen or how they might be saved. The story continues. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So now you know exactly who he is. And he said, listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. He gives some more specific instructions from God about where they are to meet the enemy army and some more encouragement. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So they believe Jehaziel's word is actually from God and they rock out and the next day they follow his instructions, still playing loud music by the way, and find the enemy army already dead. They win. So here's a few points of interest in this story. For one, the people gathered to seek the Lord and wait for his answer. I don't think it should come as any surprise to us that we might be more likely to hear God's voice when we're actually listening. For another, note the language used around the coming of the Spirit. Everyone's gathered at the temple and praying and waiting, and then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. This reflects the relationship that the Spirit had with people before Pentecost. When you look at our passage from John and go a couple chapters back, you see that claim from Jesus that the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. But this is not how they talk about God's presence in the Old Testament. The Spirit comes upon someone occasionally and only temporarily and then leaves again. It's not an everyday event. What do you think this was like for Jehaziel? As far as the text records, there was no burning bush, no audible voice, no ghostly hand writing on the wall. What made Jehaziel believe that he had heard from God so confidently that he told the assembled people, thus says the Lord? In situations like this, it seems like the Spirit puts words straight into someone's mind. This is the internal voice I'm referring to when a person is moved to action by the Spirit in a way that's not visible from the outside. And this is also what I mean when I say that the Spirit speaks in community. Think of the story from King Jehoshaphat's perspective. You're the king. You lead the army and the people. If the Spirit can come upon someone and speak right into their mind, why didn't the Spirit just speak to Jehoshaphat? He could have saved a lot of time that way. But no, the Spirit waited until Jehoshaphat had gathered the people together to pray together. And when that happened, 
the Spirit chose some no-namer out of the crowd and gave him the message to share with all the people and the king. Here's another story. This one comes from the book of Acts, chapter 15. In the lead-up to this, we've seen a church form in the city of Antioch. And it's the first time that we see a large group of Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus. Gentiles, by the way, just refers to people who aren't Jewish. Before this, it was really only Jews who became Christians with a couple of small exceptions. Within this church in Antioch, a debate arose as to whether these Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Essentially, did they need to become Jews and follow the Jewish law? It's a heavy and heated debate, and a council is gathered in Jerusalem to decide this question. We pick up the story in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter goes on to argue that the Gentiles, just like the Jews, would be saved through grace and not through following the law. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, which is another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, the, and with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. James is quoting the prophet Amos there. James suggests that they should lay down just a handful of basic rules for the Gentiles and nothing more. The council is convinced, sends a letter to Antioch to clear up the matter. After their introduction... To the brothers who are of the Gentiles, they communicate the judgment they've come to. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Why those were the things, I don't know. But point being, notice... In their letter, they attribute this decision not just to themselves, but to the Holy Spirit. How so? Where was the Holy Spirit in that story? I didn't see a burning bush. The Holy Spirit was in the community that gathered to discern this decision. Verse 7 says, there had been much debate. The Holy Spirit was in their debate. The Holy Spirit stirred Peter to speak and was in his words. The Holy Spirit was there as Paul and Barnabas shared their testimony. The Holy Spirit was there when James pointed them to Scripture. In all these things, the Spirit worked to reveal the glory of Christ. When Jehoshaphat gathered the people of Judah to pray and seek the Lord, they lived in a world where the Spirit came upon people now and then. After the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost, we see a stark difference in language in which Christians live with the Holy Spirit inside them all day, every day. The people of Judah waited for the Spirit to show up and speak through someone. The Christians 
all showed up with the Spirit already living within them. This council in Acts is like a room full of people like Jehaziel with the Spirit working in every one. It's something to think about. When you read stories about people in the Old Testament and the Bible says, the Spirit of God came upon them in power. In those moments, they get to experience something similar to what we have every day. Now, as you're listening to this, I expect some of you are listening critically, as well you should, and can't help but notice that I've just told this congregation that if they see visions and hear voices inside their heads, maybe that's God. And justifiably, you may find that concerning. So let's consider our third question. When you hear something, what makes you think it's the Holy Spirit? So the first part of my answer is that ideally, a number of these things should all work together. They are checks on each other to keep you from landing on a really wildly off-base interpretation of, of a scripture verse and just running with it with no accountability or just listening to the voices in your head without questioning where they come from. When you think that maybe the Spirit has spoken to you, you can check it against these other ways the Spirit speaks and ask yourself, is this consistent with what I see in the Bible? Are there others praying with me and for me who agree? Does it bring me peace? Does it feel wrong? And with the Spirit living in all of us every day, he will use these things to guide you to knowing Christ. Of course, if you're really taking a critical view of this, that's probably not a satisfying answer at all. You may be waiting to hear how I can prove that one of my experiences of feeling the Spirit was really some kind of message from God. Nothing I've said proves anything, right? When I feel a nudge to go start a conversation with someone, couldn't that just be the morals I've been taught or my social conditioning? Yeah, could be. When my community all prays and agrees that we should rally behind some cause, isn't that just our cultural assumptions playing out with a veneer of spirituality? Could be. I don't have proof otherwise. Even hearing an audible voice doesn't prove that was God, doesn't prove that there even is a God. Anyone with a passing familiarity with world history could point to plenty of situations in which Christians did really bad things. Their personal convictions didn't seem to stop them. Their community was probably right there with them. Their study of the Bible didn't seem to stop them. So sure, these can be checks, but none of them guarantee that you won't follow some imaginary message from God to a horrible ending. You may find the whole idea unconvincing, even dangerous, unless I can present some way that someone can be certain that what they're hearing is really God. And I hate to say it, but there is no such certainty. And there is no such certainty because when it comes down to it, it is not us who determine what the word of God is. God determines the word of God. The reality of it lies with him outside of humanity. To have certainty requires that we have something within our power that could check a box and say, this is God. Like if we knew for sure that God gave us a burning bush every time he spoke, 
If the sky turned green every time he spoke, that would give us something we could assess using our own intellects to be sure on our terms that this was definitely God. Or put another way, if we could bring God under our control, then we could be certain. But that's not the case. In listening for the Spirit's voice, we are fundamentally subjecting ourselves to something greater than us. Not that that certainty really exists in a whole lot of places. We don't actually require it of a lot of our relationships. If my mom calls me on the phone and I recognize her voice, I don't ask her to prove who she is. And if you asked me to prove it was my mom, I probably couldn't do it. I don't have proof to offer. And that doesn't bother me. I know her. She's my mom. I know her voice. Could it be an imposter? Yeah, I guess. Is that a question I'm asking myself when I have a phone call with my mom? No. I'm just talking, listening, having a relationship with my mom. Ultimately, to listen to the Spirit is an act of faith, of trust. It doesn't have to be blind faith, but when you've considered the facts, have decided to follow Jesus, believe these promises, and the Spirit speaks, at some point you make a choice to exercise faith by listening and obeying. And it's not like this is an all-or-nothing decision. We get to try to listen to God every day. So give it a try. See what happens. The question will be, did your obedience result in glorifying Christ? If it didn't, that's okay. Listen again. Over time spent listening and following Jesus, you may come to know the voice of the Holy Spirit like you know the voices of your loved ones. The Spirit speaks. This week, I invite you to listen. In fact, you'll have a chance in just a moment to practice this. We're going to take communion. Communion is a ritual. It reenacts the Last Supper when Jesus told his disciples that his body would be broken for them, his blood poured out for them. As a ritual, it's a physical reminder of the truths of the gospel, the truths of Christ. It glorifies him. So today, I want to make some space for you to hear the Spirit through an internal voice, through your community, or through the Bible. It's a listening exercise. It's okay if you're not suddenly overwhelmed by spiritual feelings. We will receive the word through the Bible. But just in case... The Spirit's been trying to talk to you about something specific. I want to make space for that today. So I'm going to pray that God will use this time to speak words of truth and encouragement to me and to you. Today, I'm just going to read Jesus' words straight out of the Bible for this. And then you'll stand and come forward to receive communion. And when you get to the front of the room... A member of your church is going to hand the bread to you and say, the body of Christ broken for you. Let your community remind you of the awesome truth of the gospel. I've asked the band to leave us some time of silence as part of this. And I pray that between the Bible, your community, and space to listen, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, declaring things that are to come and glorifying Christ by taking from what is his and declaring it to you.
God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your gospel, for dying to save us and rising again, giving us new life. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for testifying to us about the Son and bearing witness about him. God, I offer up this time to you in the act of communion, in the word of the Bible, in the silence, will you make yourself known to us? Will you guide us into knowing you? God, if there are people here that you have been nudging with something who haven't been listening, I pray that in this time you will use this space to make that known to them. We invite you here Lord, though we don't need to, we know you are here, you dwell in us. So we welcome you here within us in our space. I commit this time to you, Lord, for your purposes and your glory. Amen.